The rest of us are going to be in the book of Romans this morning, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Romans, and we'll be talking about the gospel. Imagine that. The gospel is many things, but the gospel most certainly is provocative. Think with me for a moment about just how profound and amazing the gospel is, and even think about how provocative it is. We've learned in the book of Romans that the gospel ultimately starts with God. God being perfectly righteous, with perfectly righteous standards, that He doesn't compromise, that He is always fair, He always upholds His own laws. And then think about who we are. That we are lawbreakers. That we have rebelled against God the Creator. And according to His law, He justly, He fairly has every right to condemn us for eternity. And if that's not provocative enough, which just provides the problem so that we might see how the gospel solves it, then we learn about this God, that He, motivated by love, by grace, motivated by who He is, He comes here. He comes here in the form of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Godhead becomes a human being. And He comes here and He lives a flawless life because you can't and you haven't. He comes here and then, having lived a flawless life, a perfect life, He then voluntarily goes to the cross and experiences a sinner's death. Remember, it is there on the cross where Jesus satisfies the just wrath of the Father. We sang about it today. So glad we did. God has said from the very beginning, if you sin, you will die. You will experience my judgment. Well, God, also motivated out of love, comes here and experiences His own wrath for us in the person of His Son. It's provocative. Only to rise again from the dead, proving that it was satisfactory. And then, puts the world on notice. That everyone who believes in Him, that is, everyone who trusts in Him, in Him alone, will not only be pardoned for his or her offenses, will also be declared perfect, justified, even though they're not. Because Christ lived for them. Christ died for them. For them, and he is the righteous one. That's provocative. Let me summarize Romans 1, 2, and 3 and what we've learned. What we've learned is you're saved, if you are saved, from the just wrath of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. And that, to repeat myself once again, is provocative. And if you've ever sat down with anyone and talked to them about these things in any kind of depth at all, 
or if you've ever thought about these things with any kind of sincerity, any kind of, of depth at all, you know just how provocative it is. In fact, there are a few things I would rather do in life than talk to someone who is seriously thinking about these things. They, they, they've seriously thought about the things that are talked about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. They've seriously thought about, contemplated the gospel because they've seen just how provocative it is. And now what does that do? They start asking questions. The provocative reality of the work of Christ, the gospel, provokes questions. It provokes all kinds of questions. In the book of Romans, at the end of chapter 3, there are three very provocative questions. These aren't the only three that ever come up, but these are very significant questions. Some of them are the kinds of questions we would hear, not all of them. We're going to look at them this morning. Three provocative questions in light of the reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've already looked at the first one several weeks ago. I'll just review in case you weren't here for that, and then we'll move on. Three provocative questions that the gospel solicits, that the gospel brings about. I trust this morning will be helpful for you as you think about these questions. I trust this morning will be helpful as you're better equipped to dialogue with others who will ask these questions and other kinds of questions like this. And I trust this morning ultimately will help us to see and appreciate just how amazing Christ is. Question number one. In light of the gospel, question number one is, where is the boasting? Or where is my boasting? Or, or let me put it in the way that we might say it or we might hear someone else say it. If someone hears you explain salvation in Christ, according to Romans 1, 2, and 3, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they may very well be thinking this question, or perhaps even asking this question, and they might be thinking it in these terms. Where is the part in this gospel that talks about how happy God is with what I've done for Him? Where is the part in this gospel that talks about how pleased God is with me? People think like that. If you've watched Oprah enough, you think like that. And she is, after all, according to one source, America's theologian. The people you talk to about the gospel are thinking in those terms. You might be thinking in those terms. This is a very relevant question. It's a significant question for where we are and where we live. Well, look and see with me at verse 27 where it says, Where then is boasting? Where's the part that says God is happy with me because of all that I've done? And it says in verse 27, sorry Oprah, it is excluded. It's nowhere to be found. If you really get the gospel, that it's all of Christ, and by the way, newsflash, Christianity is about Christ. <laughs> he's the hero. He, he's the focal point. He is the everything. If you really get that, according to Romans 1, 2, and 3, that you are a sinner, and you've offended God with your sin, but God being gracious, instead of blowing you away, has His Son come and do everything for you that you couldn't do. 
And so in the end, if you believe in Him, it will be good for you. It will be well with you. Well, it's excluded. That's what it says. That's where our boasting is. It's nowhere to be found anyway. Verse 27 goes on to say, further developing this, by what kind of law? Remember the context according to Romans. It's very um, legal. He's using forensic kinds of terms and verbiage, and that's the context. So he says, for, uh, by what kind of law? That's why he says it that way. Of works? No, by a law of faith or a principle of faith, as the NIV says. Verse 28 says then, unpacking this even further in case there's any confusion, for we maintain, this is common Christian belief, all Christians believe this or they should, we maintain that a man, according to this context, a sinful man or woman, is justified, declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. There you go. How do you gain the righteous standing before God that you so desperately need? Well, not according to your works. You gain a righteous standing before God based upon the work of Christ, and it's given to you by faith. That's what he's saying rather clearly. It's by faith. You see it there? Apart from works of the law. Not too long ago, I had to fill out an application for one of my kids in an athletic event. And one of the questions was, what is your greatest accomplishment? How would you fill it out? How would you fill it out as a Christian seeking the glory of Christ in all things, wanting to be gospel-centered, knowing that the gospel is the most important thing in the whole planet? You know what I wanted to say. There was something in me that wanted to say to the question, what is your greatest accomplishment in life? I wanted to say, I was tempted to say, becoming a Christian. This child of mine is a professing Christian. But you've got to know that everything in me, based upon what I know to be true about the gospel, what I know to be true based upon Romans, kept me from writing, becoming a Christian. Right? What is your greatest accomplishment? Becoming a Christian. If you think that's your greatest accomplishment, we have a special class for you down the hall. It's called Review of Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's called Anthropology. Not what you get at UNO, Anthropology, but Biblical Anthropology. Remember, we've learned in Romans chapter 3, at the very end after those three chapters, that no one does good, no, not one. There is none righteous, not even one. So what I chose to do is write, because you're wondering what I did, right? What would you do is what I want to know. I wrote some human accomplishment down and then tried to sneak the gospel in later somewhere else. (laughs) You know what I wanted to do? Just redefine the question. Cross it out. Change the rules. That's kind of a good way to do it. In many ways, that's Christ-like. They ask him questions and he answers however he wants to. But anyway. (laughs) We've got to get it in our minds. Based upon how holy God is, based upon how sinful we are and that God doesn't compromise... The only hope we have is the perfect work of Christ. And the only way to get that for yourself, the Bible says, is through faith, dependence, trust, belief, all of those being synonymous. And then in the end, Christ will get the glory, right? There won't be any boasting except, as 
the Bible would have us to see in other places. We won't go there, like in Galatians. We boast in Christ. Let's move on to the second provocative question. First one is very, very much where we live today in our world. The second one is not so much, but it will certainly see some application. The second question is, in light of the gospel that it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, my question is, especially if I have a Jewish background or if I'm very well-versed in the Old Testament, which it includes none of us, Is God the God of the Jews only? Let me reword that. Is Yahweh the God of the Jews only? Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. I've never met an unbeliever who's heard the gospel who's been just dying to ask me that question. Have you? I've met believers or people who are beginning to think through the Bible and the gospel who are dying to ask that question. But it is a question that the gospel brings up and certainly if you're a Jewish person, this is a question that the Bible brings up. Let's talk about Yahweh. Yahweh is the most formal name I know of of God from the Old Testament. It is God's supreme name. It is the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. It is His sacred, unique name. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, you'll see probably the classic text. I would say, no, on record, it is the classic text regarding Yahweh, God. If you were to ask a Jewish person, tell me, tell me, what, what is the name of your God? And they understood you to mean the name of God. They would say, Yahweh is our God. Actually, they wouldn't. Because according to Jewish tradition, you don't say the name Yahweh. It is too holy. It is too separate. It is too profound. You don't say the name. The Bible didn't give that mandate, but extra Jewish tradition did. This is why theologians have called it the ineffable tetragrammaton. I won't spell it, but you might want to write that down. The ineffable tetragrammaton. The unspeakable four-letter name for God. Because in Hebrew, Yahweh, four letters. The ineffable, the unspeakable God, the God of Israel. If I even write it down as someone who's copying manuscripts, I need to go bathe myself afterward because I'm talking about the one true God. The God who is the great I Am, the God of Israel. It's a big deal. It's a major big deal. Exodus 3.14 says, God said to Moses... 
This is Moses wondering, who should, who should I say sent me? Who, who, based upon whose authority? Give me a name. God said to Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I'm the eternal self-existent one. That's who I am. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord... There is the ineffable tetragrammaton, Yahweh. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Perhaps emphasizing the eternality when he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, but also connecting him and making sure everyone knows he's the God of Israel. And you say, where are you going with all of this? When you hear the gospel as God saves through faith in His Son, and you hear, as we have heard, and I'll revisit it in a second, that this is for Jew and Gentile, you start asking yourself the question, is, is Yahweh... Our God as Jews, the God of the Old Testament? Is He their God too? Is the God of the Old Testament the God of the New Testament? That's an oversimplification, I know, but you get the idea. That's a big question. The question is right there in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews... Only? And if you ask that to a Jewish person, they're uncomfortable. And then he says it another way in verse 29. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? That's, that's a tough question for a Jew to answer. Paul, no doubt, is anticipating that some of those who are listening to him and getting this letter are Jewish or at least with, of a Jewish mindset. And this, this is grappling. This is tough. Because everything in you as a Jew has been separate and distinct from the way you eat to the way you worship to the fact that you separate yourself from Goy. You are a Jew. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my connection. And we're talking about Yahweh. Our God, not the God of the nations. They worship pagan gods. And so there's something in you that wants to answer those questions and say, He's not the God of the Gentiles. He's only our God. There's something in you that wants to have ethnic superiority, racial superiority. He's ours. And there's something about that that is right. Because in fact, Yahweh is the God of Israel. God chose His unique people in the Old Testament. There's no question about it. But that wouldn't be altogether true, would it? Oh, there's something in them that wants to say, we're separate, we're different, and so our God is not their God. By the way, if you go to Israel today, you'll see this. It's not exactly the same as it was then because they actually want Goy to come. They want Gentiles to come because it's their main source of income. But you'll still feel the distinction. 
I remember going to a hotel, having breakfast at one morning at a hotel, and the Gentiles eat over here, and then there's a big wall, and the Jews eat over there. Didn't take me long to figure out the Jews had better dessert. So uh, I just exercised my liberties and uh, snuck over for a few bites. <laughs> Why did I bring that up? Just confessional? What's my point? I don't know. My point is, there is a massive distinction between Jew and Gentile. The God uh, of Israel and the gods of the pagans. And now in the gospel, we are hearing. Look at verse 22. Romans 3.22. This is a review. But, but this is what we hear in the gospel in 3.22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. He, he's, he's talking about the fact that if you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. And so that brings up this whole question later on that we're looking at now. Is Yahweh their God too? Oh, I don't want to say it, but, but I might have to. Look at verse 29 at the end. Yes, of Gentiles also. Then he shows the logical certainty behind such a statement in verse 30. Since, notice the connection, indeed God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith is one. I love this. I love the way the Apostle Paul uses logic in the Bible. They're not mutually exclusive. The Bible's the ultimate authority, but it's not illogical, and he weds them together, and he takes the Jewish person who wants to object to this, and he pushes him, and he pushes him, and he pushes him to rely upon what is the sine qua non of all Judaism, the bottom line of all biblical faith, of biblical reality, Old Testament, New Testament, and it's monotheism. There's only one God. So even though Yahweh is the God of Israel and we would have preached that if we were Jews, we also know there's only one God and all the other gods are fake gods. And so if there's only one God and this God saves through His unique Son, guess what? God is the God of the Jews and God is the God of the Gentiles. I love it the way he uses that good theology and their theological conviction to make sure they draw the right conclusion. I love it that he does that very thing. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now let's think about the practical ramifications. They're obvious. If God is one God and He sends His unique Son... If you believe in Him, you trust in Him because you yourself aren't righteous and you're trusting in His righteousness, in His work, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You will be equally justified. You will be equally declared righteous. And now all of a sudden, the most radical division that has ever been on planet Earth, the division between Jew and Gentile, is a non-issue. Isn't that good? 
Now let's think about how profound that becomes arguing from the greater to the lesser. There has been no distinction between, like there's been between Jew and Gentile when it comes to uh, social class, religious obviously, and all of these other things, language. But now you argue from the greater to the lesser? In Christianity, there is no place whatsoever for any distinction based upon background, based upon money, based upon skin color, based upon you fill in the blanks. It's gone. The cross is the great equalizer. We're all sinners under the wrath of God. You trust in Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Remember, Gentile, that includes anybody. Ethnic superiority, ethnic one-upmanship, racial attitude, racial agenda, zero place in the Christian life. Zero place in the Christian life. We want to be proud for our salvation. Wrong. We want to be proud because of our racial background. Wrong. We want to boast in Christ. We want to boast in Christ. I mentioned earlier that this wasn't directly applicable to us, but certainly it is by implication. Now, there's something else I want to talk about as just a further development, but time is not going to allow, so we'll save it for another time, but I just want to mention it. Since we're talking about things that are provocative in relationship to the gospel and provocative questions that come as a result of hearing the gospel... You've got to know that based upon what's being emphasized here, another question that comes about, and you will encounter this question if you talk to people about the gospel at all, and that is this. Is faith in Jesus required for salvation? I'll rephrase it. Is there another way to God apart from Jesus? I'll rephrase it. Is conscious faith in Christ required? Boy, you don't have to talk to people about Jesus very long at all, do you? Before they ask a question like that. Maybe not worded like that. Are there other saviors? What about if people are sincere but they never hear about Jesus? And on and on and on the questions come. You know, you really need to have a thoughtful answer. You really need to have a biblical answer. You really need to think that one through. We'll devote another time to that specific question. But the answer is found at least implicitly in this text because we see in this text that there's only one God giving His one Son. And so, and we have Jew and Gentile, which includes everyone. I'm using major self-control to not talk about it, but you've got to think about this. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 18, before the Great Commission, we forget about this, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, go and make disciples of all all nations 
And then we could go to John 14, 6. And then we can go to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And then we can look at the fact that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it's logical. If there's one God who's revealed himself through his son, how about John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, that is his one and only unique son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. But then it goes on to say in 3.18, if you don't believe in Him, you've been judged already. Which makes logical sense because He has one unique Son. And we can look at Romans 3.22-26 where it talks about faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. I, I want so badly for you to be able to have a a well-informed, biblically-anchored knowledge of these issues so you can talk to people about these things because they are, at least on the surface, perhaps not logical. They certainly are offensive to a pluralistic culture and society. But they are very logical. And we're thinking about and talking about and perhaps today I just stirred the pot a little bit. Let's move on. Let's move on now to another provoking question or a provocative question. The last one for this morning. This one is going to be a quick one. Okay, there's no room for personal boasting. There's no room for racial or ethnic superiority. Uh, My next question is, what about the law? What about the law? And you know what? I think if you're not asking this question, you should be. Because if you're reading your Bible at all, you're asking this question. Because after all, you've got God revealing Himself, and you have God with all of these rules and all of these regulations. Personal rules and regulations. You've got corporate rules and regulations. You've got regulations for the sacrifices. You've got all kinds of laws. Laws, 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 laws. And so, to come to Romans and to see, and I'm just summarizing, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? The logical question is, What's the deal with the law? Throw the law under the bus? The law is null and void? God changed His mind? I mean, what's the deal? And and if you're at all prideful about it, you'll you'll say, what about all the things I've been doing? It's been all for nothing? What about all my law keeping? In our day, what about all my church going? I even go when we don't get an extra hour's sleep. What's up with that? It's only by grace, only through faith, only in Christ. What is the deal? We should be asking that kind of question. He wants us to ask that kind of question. I think if we don't ask that kind of question, we're not really getting it. And so in verse 31 it says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? (laughs) If it's just salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, has the law been turned on its head? Is it null and void? Verse 31, may it never be. Strong as he can possibly say it, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law or we uphold the law. Now that all sounds fine and good. But if you don't stop and think about what he's been getting at and what he is getting at here, you won't appreciate it. 
and you won't appreciate Christ as much. When he says clearly, do we then nullify the law through faith in as loud as terms as possible in verse 31, he says no, not in a bazillion years. In fact, on the contrary, we establish the law. Who's the we? Those of us who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We, 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 we actually establish the law. We actually uphold the law. I love this. I love thinking about this. I love talking about this because it's Christ exalting and it'll help you exalt Christ. Do we, by trying to do what God says, uphold the law? We might look like it on the outside. We might be able to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm doing such a good job. I'm doing all that God commands. And we might really impress other people. I'm an upholder of the law. I obey God. Right? Even if we don't say it that way, that's how we mean to say it. I am an upholder of God's righteous standards. <sighs> Liar. Have you read Romans 1, 2, and 3? I don't think so. Because if you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, you will see without any question whatsoever, you don't uphold the law. You are a lawbreaker. Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. You don't uphold the law. How about this? You don't uphold the law by trying to look like on the outside that you're a law upholder. And you don't exalt God. Because you're trying to communicate to people and yourself that you can keep God's holy and righteous standards which are perfect and you are a sinner who can't. See, this is getting real ugly. We don't uphold the law by trying to do the law because we are sinners. How do we uphold the law? How do we lift high the law of God which lifts God high? We say... God's law is so upheld and so perfect because it is. We can't do it. What do we do? We point to Christ. That's what we do. We point to Christ because He came here to uphold the law Himself by His perfect obedience, by His submission to the Father, by His absolute perfection. One of my favorite passages in recent days, I think it's because we've been in Romans is that passage, I think it's in Matthew 17. I'll look it up in just a second. But I think it's in Matthew 17 where God the Father speaks from heaven and He says, Behold, My Son, in whom I am well pleased. I've grown to love that like I've never loved it before. God's evaluation of all of humanity, including you and me, is there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10. And this same God says about His Son Jesus, in Him, I'm well pleased. Ah. Why? Because He's the righteous one and, and He is going to absolutely uphold God's law perfectly in His life. He is going to do what you could never do. He is the law upholder. And so then, ultimately, he's going to uphold law, God's law not only by living a righteous life on our behalf, but by going to Calvary on our behalf and experiencing the just wrath of God because God's law also says if you sin, you will die. 
He's doing all of that. And so when we say, in light of Romans 1, 2, and 3, we believe the gospel, we believe in salvation by grace alone, not law-keeping or legalism or whatever you want to call it. We uphold God's law by believing in salvation not only by grace alone, but through faith alone, in Christ's finished work alone. We are not antinomian, anti-law. We are pro-law. We are so pro-law that we all fall before the law and say, we can't do it. We're sinners. Christ upheld the law perfectly. We follow and worship Him. Does that make sense? I want it to make sense. Selfishly, on one level, I don't care if it makes sense to you because it makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, really, you know what? This is, this is my basic Christianity. This is where it's at. And in one way or another, every religion on planet earth, even if it's one saying they believe in Yahweh, if they think somehow that it's something they do because that upholds the law of God, they don't get the cross. They don't get Jesus. you got to get it. When we say salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is cliff notes of saying Romans 1, 2, and 3, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We actually are upholding the law. Matthew 17, 5 is that text, by the way. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Anytime we try to help God out with our legalism, we're not exalting God. We're exalting self. What we need to do is see that we can't do it, which exalts God. And that's really the way to see God's law as superior and good and righteous, which is what the Bible says about it. What do you think? I think Christ is worthy of boasting in. I think Christ is extraordinary. Christ is everything to us. We boast in Him. We exalt Him. Christ is Christianity. That's what I think. It is about Him. It is not about us. It is about Him being exalted can't think of a better way for us to end than to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do in just a few moments. Uh, pray with me as we prepare our hearts even for that. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the great, great realities of Christ. Lord, thank you that he frees us from our sin. Thank you, Lord, that he helps us to see through false human religion. Thank you that he is our righteousness. And that by your grace we can see that we have none of our own. We love Jesus Christ. And in so many ways, Father, we want to keep it that simple. At the same time, we want to know more of the depth and the height and the breadth of his love and of his greatness. And so we ask that you would help us supernaturally to do both that we would have a 
profoundly simple dependence upon Christ. And at the same time, as we love Him more, as we are more and more impressed with His greatness, help us to grow up spiritually and not remain babies in the faith. Lord, thank You for this opportunity we have to take simple things like bread and wine and obey You by eating them and drinking them as they show us, they remind us in a profound way how You gave Yourself, Your body, Your blood, ultimately Your life as a ransom for many so that we might have hope. Lord, what a great thing it is for us to rejoice in these things. In Jesus' name, Amen.